0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: I'm very pleased to introduce my colleague, Dr. Susan Little, um, who will moderate this evening's discussion. Um, Susan first presented on this topic about five years ago in our series, and that subsequently led to our NIH grant proposal to look at this new technology she had been working on. Um, She is one of the leaders in San Diego, working on ways to try and limit HIV infection, identifying mechanisms and circumstances of transmission um, from an individual to another. Um, She's been developing tools to accomplish that, that important goal as a scientist, but has at the same time been asking questions about how best to deal with this research from an ethical perspective. Based on that, she and I co-lead this NIH grant, which led to a series of three programs. This is the third of those programs tonight. So I'm going to ask Susan now to introduce our speaker.
2: So thank you very much and welcome. Um, it is my great pleasure tonight to introduce uh, Mr. Uh, Jeffrey Crawley. He is a Distinguished Scholar and Program Director of the uh, National HIV-AIDS Initiative at the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law at Georgetown Law. From 2009 to 11, he served as the Director of the White House Office of National AIDS Policy and Senior Advisor on Disability Policy for President Barack Obama. As the president's chief HIV-AIDS advisor, Mr. Crowley led uh, the development of the first comprehensive national HIV-AIDS strategy for the United States. Also during his tenure at the White House, Mr. Crowley uh, made uh, contributions to the development and implementation of the Affordable Care Act. So it is um, with great um, uh, enthusiastic welcome that um, I look forward to his comments tonight on personalized medicine, big data, and innovating to improve HIV health care. Mr.
0: Crowley. Good afternoon. I want to thank both Drs. Kellickman and Little for inviting me to be here. It's a pleasure to join you. So, you know, I have to start with my disclaimer first off. And I was telling um, Dr. Little on the way here, I'm not an expert on any of the things we're talking about tonight. So I just want to tell you that. But um, I still think there's a reason why I agreed to come here. You know, I've worked... um, not on the periphery. On some of these issues we'll, we'll touch on. I've been more engaged or not engaged in the past. Um, but I am a policy person. And often you know, what I do is help you know, researchers and, and others think about how policymakers look at the issue. And maybe I can provide a frame for how we think about some of these issues and can move it forward. But I would say a couple of things. One, this is an exciting time. Certainly I um, have an opportunity to talk to lots of HIV audiences around the country. And one of the first things I always want to tell people is... It is an exciting time, and we've got to recognize that because that's how we keep making progress. You know, if we just kept saying, oh, we've been doing this for 30 years and going on, you know, we wouldn't get the level of investment that we sustained, but a lot of really exciting things are happening. And a lot of this involves cutting-edge technological change and innovation, and a lot of it's happening here. And it has the potential to really help us achieve our national and global goals to help all people with HIV lead long and healthy lives, right? But at the same time, we need to recognize that HIV-related stigma and discrimination are alive and well. So despite the steps we've taken to counter this, it's still a a very significant problem. So we need to be careful as we try to innovate that we recognize the potential for harm. So what I'm going to try to do is a very high level tonight, talk about the opportunities, the risk, ways ways policymakers have tried to address some of these challenges to date, and really come away with some recommendations for you. And I'm sort of lumping you in as providers um, and researchers tonight, even though you probably play play other roles. But what I want you to take away, and again, building on D- Dr. Kalikman's comment about um, your ethical responsibility, we only make change happen unless we all get engaged. So there's a role for, for all of you to engage on these issues. So first off, I just want to talk about what is big data and what are we talking about here? And it's, you know, we all have adopted the Internet. We use it in interesting ways. And this user-generated model has, has really p- produced an unprecedented quantity of data. And the concept of big data is really trying to how can we use these data to learn things we couldn't you know, in, in the past just by analyzing systematically these large data sets. It can also be used in a way, and I lo- use this term loosely, to produce, um, intentional, um, repositories of information like genomic information, collection of medical records in a way that by aggregating data we can, um, c- again, achieve new insights just by, um, our systematic analysis of data. But this larger capacity to, to store data, process it, and using more powerful analytical techniques is really, uh, means that sometimes small, individually ins- insignificant inputs of data really can lead to um, aggregated in ways that um, we can learn lots of things, but it also magnifies the risk. So just think about it. When, we think about, when I think about when we first worked on the HIPAA privacy rule, which we'll talk about, we were talking very much about privacy breaches in a doctor's office when the medical record was in a, a paper chart, right? Now it's electronic, and now we're talking about big data where it's not just what's in our medical record, it's every time we go on a website there's data being collected about us. The ability of a breach to produce damage when it's a medical record on paper is magnified exponentially when we have these large data sets. So while we all want to embrace our smartphones and all the benefits of technology, we need to recognize the risk. So I just want to very quickly give you three examples of what I see are some key opportunities. The first, again, is based on work that um, Dr. Little and her, her colleagues are doing here in, in San Diego to look at HIV clusters to um, really understand the dynamics of HIV transmission networks to really target our um, prevention interv- interventions more effectively. And they've looked at HIV sequences to infer transmission networks here in, in San Diego. And they're they're really trying to learn about the characteristics of viral strains that are propagating in in the community here and and characteristics of people with these strains. This is really exciting. Again, we can provide better care and target our prevention interventions when we use these new tools. So we want to be able to do this kind of thing. One of the areas that I um, spend a lot of time and I think is maybe most right from a policy level um, federally is using surveillance data to improve retention and care. I'm assuming that some of you, and maybe this is a false assumption, have some connection to HIV and maybe you've heard of the treatment cascade or the care continuum. But this is this concept that's been popularized recently where we look not just at an individual with HIV, we look at all people with HIV in the United States, we say how many are living with HIV, then a certain percent, 86%, are diagnosed, then those are linked, retained in care, meaning they get regular medical care, they get on treatment, and they're virally suppressed, right? So using this, this shows us that we do a pretty good job of diagnosing people, but by the time we get to the end, only about 30% of people with HIV in this country are engaged in care. But when you talk to the health system, you talk to the doctors that provide this care, and the nurses, many of them historically have thought their responsibility starts when um, people show up at the clinic. So if they miss a clinic visit, they never show up, that's not their problem, right? But now, using surveillance data, this data that we've, we've collected for public health purposes and integrating it with clinical care data, we can revamp our system so we're actively identifying people that when they fall out of care and intervening before they go six months to a year not being in care. This is really exciting. There's a lot of examples I put on my slide um, An example from Louisiana, it's called LAFI, the Louisiana Public Health Information Exchange. They've developed a statewide HIV electronic medical record system. And one of the things that that stands out is, based on data from 2013, 69% of their patients with HIV who are identified in their system as having fallen out of care were linked back into care within 90 days. That's a very high rate. And that's really what we want to see everywhere, right? So, again, this is using large data sets and information in new ways, and it's exciting. And then the third point I'd highlight is just um, improving how we allocate resources. You know, again, Dr. Little introduced me, and I had this policy role at the White House, and um, maybe I had a unique view there that we're never going to have enough money, right? It doesn't matter how much we have. There's always been a need or demand for more. And I would say with whatever money we have, we have to make the best decisions possible, right? And so CDC recently has started... um, Establish what they call their RAMP program, their resource allocation modeling project. But they're trying to use data to really inform decisions by health departments and others to say, with a limited amount of data, how can we best deploy those? Again, if we're talking prevention, to have the greatest impact at reducing the number of new HIV infections. So if I gave you $1,000 to prevent an HIV, how much should you allocate to testing? How much for treatment? How much for behavioral interventions? If you're going to allocate your money for testing, how much should you um, allocate for clinical testing versus community-based testing, right? We've got to get smart at this. And, again, Philadelphia is an example I c- cited here, and they've made some tangible changes. They've, they've done, because of this, this resource allocation modeling, more screening of um, men who have sex with men in non-clinical settings. They've really reemphasized, uh, refocused their behavioral programs for people with HIV less um, focus on the much larger group of people, of people who are HIV negative. These are the kinds of things we want to make it happen everywhere to get smarter in, in allocating our funds, but it, it takes data. So that's the opportunity, but there are risks. And I'm going to breeze through some examples of, of these things. I'm going to spend the most time on the issue around HIV criminalization, but, so just permit me to give you some examples of, of other risk. And the point I'd want to make is... We've been dealing with this epidemic for 30 years. These things are still happening today. So even though we've done things, employment discrimination, I'm not going to read um, all of them. Man told his HIV status disqualified him from becoming a police officer. Fired from um, a restaurant in Las Vegas after he disclosed his status in response to a question on a health insurance um, application. These types of things are happening today. Even though we we have put in place laws that protect people, the the problems still exist. So you know, this idea of collecting all these big data sets with this very personal information, there are real risks. You know, one thing, again, I worry about, if, if our goal as a country to end the HIV epidemic is to diagnose all people with HIV, get them on treatment as soon as possible, we've got to eliminate every single barrier to care, right? And this idea that fear of disclosure or desire, desire for privacy may limit people from ever wanting to get tested or may limit their willingness to start treatment or take treatment if they're afraid someone will see them taking treatment really can can have some adverse impulses. And then when we hear about these data breaches on the news you know it just creates this um this sense of, of fear and, and distrust of the health system they, even when when systems are trying to protect your information they won't always get it right so that's one of the risks physical violence is is a real problem you know um, people with hiv experience um, violence in, in forms of phys, um, physical abuse including intimate partner violence community violence this is true for women and men but you know, for women in particular, there, there's well-documented evidence that um, many women with HIV experience physical violence and trauma when they disclose their HIV status to their, uh, their partners. You know, so it's creating, in some cases, real risk of harm for them. And, but we also know that it's not only risk of their physical safety, women that have a history of intimate partner violence have been shown to be less able to adhere to a course of treatment. So it affects their, their ability to, to get on treatment and also get the benefits of treatment. So there, there are real harms. Now I want to go to this issue that's gotten a lot of attention recently, and that's HIV criminalization. And just to say, you know, this is not an old problem, this is an ongoing problem. In the United States, there have been more than 200 prosecutions against people with HIV since 2008, 33 states, including California, which I'll get to, have laws criminalizing HIV exposure or transmission, 38 states use general criminal statutes to prosecute people with HIV. 11 states, this is so egregious, make it a crime for people with HIV to spit or bite. So I'm not pro-spitting. I'm not pro-biting. <laughs> but if, if someone in the context of an arrest by, by law enforcement is going to spit or bite, there's no scientific basis or any basis for treating a person with HIV differently. But yet that happens. 29 states have had a prosecution in the last t- ten year, t- Excuse me, two years. And 10 states have a punishment that includes sex offender registry. So this goes with you everywhere you, for the rest of your life, influences where you can live. Again, I want to just breeze through these, um, these, these cases, and maybe you can read them. The, the third bullet is sort of like the, the most prominent case. A man in Iowa had um, an, HIV, had an undetectable viral load. He had a one-time consensual sexual encounter. A condom was used. No transmission occurred. He was sentenced to prison for 25 years. Now, Iowa's changed their law. He's gotten out of prison, you know. So that, that's a good news story. But the point I would make about that is sometimes you, you tell these stories and they think, like, oh, it's so bad it happened to that one person. This happens all the time, all over the place. man in Texas is serving 35 years for spitting at a police officer. You know, a 23-year-old man in Washington was sentenced to 87 months in prison after pleading guilty to unprotected sex without disclosure of his status to someone he met online. And I'll just raise, you know, this could be a whole hour conversation, but but what are the rules of the road? Is, is the responsibility fully on the person with HIV? And when you're meeting someone online, it's like a very casual encounter. You know, I think if you talk to a lot of lawyers, they'd probably say, I wouldn't counsel you to disclose, because that, that could have implications for you as a person with HIV. Now, these are complex issues, but some of these cases are just really challenging to hear about. But, you know, at one point there was really a policy rationale for for these laws, I think, no longer exists. You know, and a lot of people, even if they were controversial at the time, people could make a case that this was about protecting the public. And we found that there's no evidence that the laws deter risky behavior. So if that's our goal is you have these laws so people won't behave in in ways that policymakers describe as risky, they're not working. Studies have said there's no difference in sexual risk-taking with states with and without these laws. People in the states with them don't know how they function. So how can they follow the law if they don't understand them? But they also send really inaccurate messages that you're, you're supposed to avoid people with HIV. They don't really take into account the effectiveness of condoms or treatment or pre-exposure prophylaxis, all these tools we have to prevent infection. They just act as though a person with HIV, they're you know a vector of transmission. You know, and studies have also shown that these, these laws um, increase stigma and, again, reduce health outcomes. So I want to touch briefly on what's going on in California. So currently, California has some of these laws. Now, I can't say that the news is that every state, these laws are really old. But in California, your laws have existed for a while. So it's not as though your legislative has enacted them recently. Um, But there's an effort underway to make some changes to your laws. And to the extent you can, I encourage you all to learn about this and get engaged. Um, There's an effort this session to repeal a section that makes it a felony for people with HIV to donate blood and tissue. Um, There's also an effort to repeal a section of of the law making it a felony for people with HIV to engage in unprotected sex with specific intent of infecting a sex partner if no disclosure of HIV status because the law singles out HIV from other communicable diseases. So these changes, if they're enacted, would would eliminate the, the felony convictions. Now California, unlike many other states, has a law that makes it a misdemeanor to willfully expose another person to any communicable disease, right? Because often what we say is HIV has been treated in a unique way, but you have a broader one. So, so what's been tried here, and, and, and this might be a way to mitigate the harm because I think there's probably an assessment you can't just get rid of this this completely. So there'd still be a misdemeanor. It would apply now to HIV, but it would only, you could only be convicted if you had knowledge of your infection, you had an intent to transmit, you intentionally engaged in conduct that proposed substantial risk of transmission, the other person must not have had knowledge of the infection, and the transmission is required in addition to the exposure. These are all things that really mitigate a lot of the harm. I think it's up to you and people in your state to see if this gets enacted. I don't have a lot more information. Um, The San Francisco AIDS Foundation is one of the few um, statewide um, HIV organizations that I think keeps lobbyists in Sacramento. I think they're leading some of the coalition efforts on this, so if you hear about this, I would encourage you to turn to them for more information. So now what have we done? And again, I'm going to talk about um, some different laws and policies because there are complex issues, but let me give you the top line message up front. None of these laws are comprehensive. They all sort of deal with bits and bits and pieces. There's still gaps, but I don't know that there's like the perfect comprehensive solution out there either. So we're, we're in some ways going to be stuck grappling with this. So the first off is the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA. It just um, celebrated its um, 25th anniversary this year. Protects people with disabilities on the basis of uh, discrimination against disability in employment and state and local government and transportation, public accommodations and telecommunications. It protects people with a disability, people with a history of disability, and people who are perceived as having a disability by others. So if, you know, we know HIV is concentrated among gay men. If someone says, oh, You're gay, therefore I think you have HIV and I'm going to discriminate against you. That's unlawful. I'll tell you there's a flip side to that story in a a second in one of the the challenges. So... We have 25 years of experience with this law. The HIV community in some ways have been among the most active um, enforcers of the law. It's been a huge success, but there are some challenges. There's an exception. You don't have to comply with the ADA if complying would would essentially constitute a direct threat to the health or safety of others. So we're not going to make a doctor or a nurse do something if it's going to be a direct threat to them acquiring HIV, for example. But the challenge is that this was intended to be a narrow exception, and courts have expanded what was a direct threat by really going beyond what's a significant risk, you know, to things, you know, that really have a a negligible risk. And there's this interesting cultural clash between doctors and lawyers. So CDC puts out guidance that says the risk of transmission from oral sex is negligible. Then you read their footnotes, they're like, maybe it's happened, but there are not well documented cases. But then the lawyers look at it and say, but there's some risk. You know, it's a culture problem that that we're dealing with. But that's one of the, the challenges we need to get with. And then the other thing is, it's unlawful to discriminate against people with HIV because they have HIV. But again, going to my example, if a lot of people with HIV are gay men, it's lawful in this country to discriminate against people on the basis of their LGBT status. You know, so we really need. And the ADA at the time when it was enacted specifically excluded sexual orientation and gender t- dysphoria from its scope. So it can often be really difficult. You know, if you just know you're being discriminated against, is it because of HIV or is it because you're LGBT, right? And so that's, that's one of the challenges that I think, you know, the next phase of enforcement of use of the ADA um, we need to deal with. HIPAA is a privacy rule. It was enacted in the late 90s. It was amended in 2009. It it regulates individually identifiable health information of covered entities. So if you have information you're just, you know, at a movie theater, you're not covered. You have had to be a health plan, a health care provider, health care clearinghouse that transmits electronic, health information electronically. And the, law, the, the rule limits uses and disclosures of how you, how, can, how you can handle this information. It does a lot of good, but there's a lot of gaps there, right? Not everybody is a covered entity. Not all health information is protected health information, so, so there's some serious gaps. There's some exceptions. So the way HIPAA works is that it says that your information can't be used or disclosed without your consent. There's a presumed consent that if you go in for medical care, the presumption is you've consented for medical care and health care operations, so treatment payment. So whatever they have to do to pay for the service you received, that's presumed. But then there's also exceptions to when when you need consent, and there's some exceptions for researchers. So if you're researchers, there's numbers of ways you, you can get around this, but the basic standard is one, an individual... Can give their consent and then, then you, to, to the disclosure. But an institutional review board can um, review it and, and make a determination that, that can permit the research to take place without consent. That's the basic structure. Um, there are also public health um, exceptions, so disclosures can may be made for like surveillance for when required by law. So a lot of these complex issues have been thought out, but there's still some, some gaps, and HIPAA still leaves some gaps in coverage. Then more recently, Congress enacted the Genetic Non-Discrimination Act. It's called GINA. And it prohibits discrimination on the basis of genetic information in employment and health insurance. It really was attempted to address concerns around um, genetic testing or people with family history would be discriminated against certain things. And again, it's a step forward, but it's it's not fully fully comprehensive. And I'm going to just skip through this because the details of the scope of this Aren't as really as important is what you hopefully you're seeing. The ADA does one piece, HIPAA does one piece, Gina does one piece. None of them get it get a, every every permutation. And then the last thing, uh, law that I want to mention is um, you remember the Recovery Act when President Obama first came into office. It was the it was called the Stimulus, I guess. You know this legislation lots of pizza, but we also included the Health Information Technology for Economic and Clinical Health Act. And in some ways, this updated um, HIPAA. It also invested billions of dollars of money to really incentivize or promote the shift of the uh, the adoption of electronic health records. And um, it also authorized HHS to establish standards and programs to enhance the use of health information technology, create um, Medicare and Medicaid incentives for hospitals and and physicians to adopt electronic health records, and provided grants to help um, figure out how to develop health information exchanges. So what I would say about all of this is that um, most of these laws are really limited to traditional healthcare systems and their contracting business associates. So, in the healthcare sphere, there's no legally mandated set of security standards that applies to third parties. There's no requirement for covered entities to perform an audit to make sure that all the people they contract with um, adhere to HIPAA. So, if, think about your institution, UCSD, you're going to have contracts with 10, 20, 100 other entities, you might say you're going to have to follow the, comply with HIPAA. There's no requirements to make sure that that actually happens, so the follow-through is, is weak. Um, there's lack of, of detail in some cases about how people are supposed to s- s- comply. The Institute of Medicine looked at this and said, we need a whole, full, whole, wholly new framework for privacy protection. But I think the challenge, and I think the thing that's interesting for, for here is that Privacy protections must keep pace with technological information. We haven't figured out how to handle the more classic cases of uses and disclosures in the health context. Then, when we get to the work of people like Dr. Little, where it's like you're taking information that most people would say, How could you ever identify a person with? and, and, and they can get there by, you know, looking at their um, genome, you know, it, it's, it's exciting but frightening at, this, at the same time. And so, I think we need a more robust legal framework. To, um, to govern these issues. And I haven't even touched on all the, the internet stuff. You know, this idea, people, you know, we can do flu mapping by looking at Google searches. You know, there's all these new innovative things we're doing with information. How do we keep up? And unfortunately, I don't think there is a, a way to say, this is the steps we need to take now to, to protect people. I think we're going to have to keep grappling with it. But as I wrap up, I just want to say, I have a couple brief messages for you. If you're as providers or researchers, if you're confused by all this, your patients are much more so. So I think you have a, contra- a responsibility to really educate yourselves and figure out how, how to help them navigate. And I think what we found in general is, well, first of all, not everybody is going to consent. But people with HIV and others generally want to contribute to the greater good. They, they participate in clinical trials. Often we, it can be very reassuring for people to, to just tell them how the law works, what it does do and what it doesn't do. And I think you all have responsibilities to help with that. Within your institutions, so I also think you have some responsibilities. You know, the laws and policies I mentioned really set minimums. They're trying to be legally enforceable standards. But when you do that, you set a low bar. You and your institutions probably can do more. And you can do more not because federal law requires you to, but because you care about your reputation, you care about your patients. You know, I don't know what those steps are, but many of you, because you're closer to, to the work you are, have unique insights about you know, both the promise and the perils of of aggregating these data. And I just say, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And, you know, I used to be a researcher, and I know that's not the mindset. The mindset is sort of like, yeah, I have this great study idea. There's not really a natural or institutional impulse to say, really, should we do it? Even if you go through the institutional review board process, it's all about what are the tweaks I need to make to get it approved, not to ever just say, you know what, maybe in our judgment we shouldn't do this. And so I think... Many of you need to be champions for both promoting the research and for protecting privacy. And this isn't just about compliance, about having your institution hire someone to make sure you comply with the letter of the law. It's about really saying, how do we get this balance right? But my last message for you is out in the world, we need you all to be engaged. Because these are complex issues. And none of us know everything we need to know. But policymakers aren't going to know as much as you do as researchers and, and clinicians about the benefits for this. I would say our political system feels broken at the moment. So in some cases it's it's just dominated by the most powerful interest. You know, we have a HIPAA privacy rule and it's sort of a fluke of history. When Congress enacted HIPAA, they gave a very long period of time, a couple of years and said Congress has until this date to act and only if this if Congress doesn't act is the Secretary of HHS empowered to issue the privacy rule. They just assumed that that would be a pretty big carrot for Congress to say, we don't want the administration doing our job, we're gonna pass a law. They never could get the consensus necessary to get a law, but you couldn't go as far in a rule as you could with a law, right? So that gridlock, though, has only gotten worse. But I would say there are some things that give me hope. Sometimes disruptive technology can create new opportunities. And i just say, just this week, we've heard about, you know, the EU saying, you know, I can't even characterize it properly, but striking down some data sharing agreements with the United States that could force some change that we maybe we didn't even see this coming, and we think we are operate within our borders. But those types of things, even if it's just if there's a standard that develops in other countries around privacy protection, will be a force to change, and that could create new opportunities. And again, I didn't get into it for brevity, but there are researchers here that have done important work around differential privacy, and... I don't even know enough to say I love it or hate the concept, but I do love the idea that people are trying to think in innovative ways, and it's not all about waiting for a federal law to fix this. about saying, how can we do our research in ways that is more protective of privacy? And I think that will lead the way. One thing when we talk about these things is I think often there's a perception by researchers is that the community will oppose this. You know, I remember in the 90s, we fought over a move from CDC to go to namespace reporting. There was big controversy, and people thought, oh, the community will never get along. One of the most encouraging things that happened is I was involved in a process convened by Project Inform, a national group based in San Francisco, where they looked at this um, active surveillance that I talked about earlier, and you had community people, you had doctors, you had others. At the beginning of this meeting, people were like, no way, no how, this is too scary. By the end, people signed on. And Liz, were you there? Yeah, Liz and I were both there at this process. People said the, the benefits outweigh the risk. So it, was, it it's a great example to show the community will come along because they, they want to seize these opportunities just like you do, but we have to make sure we engage them in the right way. And now my parting thoughts. I want to always end where I begin. This is an exciting time in our response to the HIV pandemic. We've begun to talk about moving toward ending the HIV epidemic in the United States. That's an exciting concept, right? But we're far from making that happen. We have effective treatments, prevention methods, but what we have today isn't enough to get us there, right? We still need ongoing innovation. And that is critical to achieving our national and global goals. Work that's taking place here in San Diego is really contributing to this. And because of the the speed with which I moved through this, I didn't get to highlight satisfactorily a lot of the exciting stuff happening here in your community. But I think to seize this moment, we have to have a clear-eyed view of both the opportunities and the risk. And we can't just say, oh, it's all going to be great, or oh, it's going to be doomed. Clear-eyed and really try to say, what are some concrete steps we can take? both with national, state, local policy, but also in our institutions. And providers and researchers really must be engaged to help their patients, their institutions, and work for broader change. And with that, I will stop and say thank you, but I'd also like to acknowledge my colleague, Sean Bland, who um, is an attorney that works with me at Georgetown, and helped me with this presentation.
2: I'm going to get things started by just asking a couple of somewhat general and then more specific questions uh, to Mr. Crawley. Um, My first question related to your presentation is um, you mentioned the CDC RAMP program, the allocation of resources, um, Uh, a more um, efficient allocation of resources um, based on big data analyses, et cetera. And my question is, do you see any difference, should there be a difference, between allocation of resources to particular services and allocation of resources to specific people or groups of people? Is there any difference from a policy or a legal standpoint? For instance, if we knew that there were a group of people um, with a much higher prevalence of HIV who had never been tested... Um, And I don't mean, you know, reaching out to uh, 25 to 35-year-old gay white men. I mean a specific city block or two.
0: So that was a a long question, and I could (laughs) go on at great length. But let me sort of step back from the specific um, question and say that, you know, we invest a lot of money in HIV prevention um, in the United States. And one of the things that we did in the Obama administration is we changed how we allocate the funding. And there was a formula, but it probably wasn't the best formula. You know, we've, and a lot of our HIV pre- programs have had to move away from counting just cumulative AIDS cases, which means we counted cumulative, meaning so people that have died are still counted, not counting all people living with HIV. So we've moved to a formula based on living HIV AIDS cases. Right? That's actually resulted in a fundamental shift in the allocation of resources geographically across the United States. That's a big step forward. That was operationalized through a five-year cooperative agreement for health departments, state and local health departments that's coming up. They're thinking about the next phase. I think the next phase... And there is guidance that says you must allocate the, the money proportionally, but states haven't always done that. And as an example, so in New York State, for example, about 128,000 people living with HIV, all but 14,000 live in New York City. The state basically and there's political dynamics, basically took their money and spread it pretty evenly across the state. So for the first time, CDC sort of said, no, no, you're going to keep the proportionate money in in the state. But your question goes to, that's, that was a great step. We need to keep going. I think we need to look geographically, not only like city, county level, but as you suggest, neighborhoods. And I think this is important because um, it's not just like, did we get the policy right? You, can't, you can go too far and then you get a rebellion. We went as far as we could, but technology has brought us further. We're able to target resources better in a way we couldn't five years ago. And the, the corollary to that is also the population focus. So one of the things I'm challenged by in how we allocate money is you go to every state health department they say, oh, yes, we're following the epidemic. We're funding gay men. We're funding women. But some groups, they're really funding and some groups, they're not. And I'd say uniformly, pretty much every state is underfunding gay men, for example. You know, the only group where HIV infection rates are increasing, very disproportionately underfunded, even though the perception is that they're overfunded. So I think, you know, the next phase, we we need to keep getting um, more strategic. But the last thing I would say in this long answer is that there's no algorithm. Some of this requires political leadership and, and balancing interests. It's not like you can write a computer program to say, $5 goes here, $10. It requires political leadership to make judgments as well.
2: Thank you. My next one is um, what are our, and I'm going to use our in a very broad sense, um, sort of providers, let's say, ethical obligations to educate or warn consumers that they may in fact be at risk of HIV infection? So I'm not specifically talking about partner services, but if you're going to talk to somebody who is an at-risk um, individual and talk to them about their risk, um, if you provide all of the details like you were just describing, if you read the, the footnotes and describe everything, oftentimes there's a perception of, well, there there, there is a big risk um, or there is a risk versus, um, I guess I'm trying to say in a not very articulate way, how do we best inform and educate the public without raising fear and anxiety? Right.
0: This is an interesting question. So I was involved in the release of our national HIV AIDS strategy. And one of the the things that I found most complimentary is people said it was the most honest explanation of where we were with the epidemic. But some people said, you're pretty clear about where the epidemic is. And are you afraid that you're further stigmatizing gay men, for example, by being clear that they're at such high risk? And one, I would say, I think the country's in a different place. I think we're mature enough to hear it. But going back to providers, I think Providers, I'm not an ethicist, so Dr. Kalickman can can answer the ethical questions. But I think, you know, there is this understanding that that providers have a a duty to provide good care, right? So if you're serving a patient from a high risk population, it seems like you have an ethical duty to let them know about that. And it's not to to say, I want to scare you into something, it's to give them the facts and tell them how they can prevent infection. If they're living with HIV, not scare them and say, you can live a, a, a normal lifespan, you know? But I do think there are duties around that.
2: And, and just sort of to spin off of that, um, if, again, I'm, I'm always looking forward to what new data are telling us. And if new data are telling us that there is a particular hotspot, I'm going to pick a venue, not going to name it, a bar. Um, and we know that there is a very disproportionate risk of HIV transmission. We're seeing a lot more new cases come from this particular place. How, again, would... How would you advise using that information?
0: So, I think that's hard to answer cuz I think it's very context specific. Yeah. But what I would say is you want to respond. You can't like I think there's a response if you know there's like high rates of transmission happening, you have to do something. But I also think that, you know, this really is about, you know, we've learned something of the ep- epidemic, the role of community partnerships. I think you, you need to find ways to, to work with the affected people and find ways to get their cooperation. You know, often it feels like, and again, not to pick on doctors, but it's almost like doctors want to go in and shame their patients. Like, well, you shouldn't be doing that. See, here's the evidence why you shouldn't be. I don't think that's effective. You know, people will make their own decisions about how they want to live their life. And maybe it means engaging in sexual behavior that their doctors don't like. There are still ways to establish partnerships that are based on respect and trust. And so I... And again, it's not all on the doctor, it's not all on the community. I think it's the, the, the marriage of the two where you really see exciting things happening. And that might require a, di- a different response in a different situation. Mm-hmm.
2: In, in sort of today's environment, how secure are, with the expansion of electronic medical records, how secure should all of us feel about the data that is in those records, and how is it any different than credit card fraud? Or should we expect large releases of data?
0: I'm not a politician, but sometimes I answer and people think I'm a politician because I talk out of both sides of my mouth, and I'd say a couple things. One, we like try to enact policy and think the results are going to be instantaneous. You pass the law, things are different. Well, you know, that's not really how things work. I would say that HIPAA, the privacy rule that I mentioned briefly, has had a fundamental shift because it's caused all these actors across the health system to think about privacy in a way they never did. I mean, one, the law requires them to lock their files, to think about there are still ways we need to go better. But it's created a culture. It's created, you know, one of the the criticisms is that HIPAA really provides for permissive disclosures. It doesn't require you to. And often the lawyers get involved and say, we're just going to be this safe thing. Well, you know, that's frustrating and it's probably not good but there could be worse outcomes. It's better than the outcome being always disclosed, right? So just creating that culture has created more protections, but at the same time, the pace of innovation, the risk have grown so exponentially. I just think it's, I don't even know the right terms for it. It's, it's, it's more diffuse risk, but the, the risk to individuals still could be pretty significant. In these states where there are HIV criminal laws, or we see these prosecutors prosecuting people aggressively, I think that's a fundamentally different dynamic, too, because it really raises the risk that, that, you know, what we want right now is we want all people with HIV to learn their HIV status, get in for care. If you're afraid that you are going to get prosecuted for having sex because you've learned your HIV status and you can't be prosecuted if you don't, that could send a message, don't get tested, right? We want to eliminate those barriers. So those are the kinds of things I worry about as well.
2: And and how close do you think, I mean, there are still an awful lot of states that have criminal, you know, statutes on the books. Is that something we're going to see, do you think, in five years, one year? I mean, you said, you know, that as long as people think there's a risk that they may be prosecuted, a lot of the work we're doing, that is my greatest concern, is that we will be linking people and setting the stage for potential lawsuits. And that is obviously exactly what we don't want to do.
0: I think that we're going to make progress. You know, it's interesting, um, the National HIV AIDS Strategy, some of the most strident advocates were pleased with what we said about these HIV criminal laws. I mean, they wanted us to go further, but that's, that's par for the course. But they were pleased that we sort of put this on the table. But at the same time, I think many of them were looking for a federal solution. When I'd say this really isn't amenable to a federal solution, some of them were like, well, the federal government should... You know, there's really no precedence for the federal government, you know, to weigh in on on state criminal laws. You know, and we have this concept of federalism. Some of us may not like it, but that's that's the system we have. So it really is a state by state battle. And I think we can make a lot of progress. But in five years, we probably still will have some of these laws. Mm -hmm. But the thing that has me most hopeful. One of the things that I've learned about this, it's not just the laws, it's the prosecutors. You know, prosecutors don't make their name and reputation by delivering justice. They make their name and reputation by throwing people in jail, right? And so some of the incentives are wrong, but one of the most exciting things I've seen is just efforts to get to them and educate them. And there it's providers. You know, and I've said this. I mean, Dr. Little heard me speak at another research conference where one of the points I made was 100 lawyers could say the same thing as one doctor, and the doctor would have far greater impact. So here I think providers need to just you know, find ways to talk to these people in law enforcement, local prosecutors, just to say the basics, condoms work. If you have someone who's virally suppressed, undetectable, their risk of transmission is very low. You know, just these basic things, I think, can, can be the hook to help us make progress.
2: Why is the burden of disclosure historically always been with the HIV-infected person? In other words, do you see that changing? Again, particularly since it is so readily treatable, but even in the absence of treatment, um, there does seem to be an overwhelming urge to sort of, put the blame over there.
0: Right. I think we have a lot of work to do here. Both we need to reframe the conversation that it's, it's a shared responsibility, that if two people are going to engage in a sexual encounter, both of them need to go into that, and they both have responsibilities if they're HIV negative to, to behave in ways that, that um, keep them negative. Now, we know there are situations where there's unequal power. There's situations of coercion that... I'm not talking about that, but I'm just talking about a situation. We need to sort of say the general dynamic is if you, say you're a parent, have a child going out in the world, you need to tell them they're at risk for HIV and they need to actively take steps to prevent that. We need to do that instead of creating this climate where you, you have a right to go into the world and assume that you're going to only encounter HIV-negative people. And if you encounter a person who's, who's living with HIV, somehow they've done something to you. So first off, we need to, we need to change, change that dynamic. But one of the things that I think is, is most frustrating for me about this is we, we need to have a different dialogue about healthy sexual behavior and acknowledge that people ha- have sex, acknowledge that gay people have sex. And it's fascinating to me when we're at this point in our history where we've made so much progress on LGBT civil rights, it feels like we've barely budged the needle on some of these issues. And it's still like people will embrace gay people but don't make them think about them ever having sex. And, and you know, then I hear advocates come to the, the table in Washington and say, policymakers need to talk about sex and be sex positive. I think providers need to help figure out how, ways to have these conversations with their patients and other providers. And I think that can normalize some of the stuff that can translate up to policymakers, and then we can make some change. But we're gonna need a decade or two to make some progress on this front, I think.
2: <laughs> okay, I'm gonna take a couple of questions from the audience. Um, can you, there's a lot of interest in the, is it LaFee project, um, and how it was implemented.
0: So LaFe, again, I'm not an expert on <laughs> any of this, so I, I can only go so deep. But LaFee is an interesting example. And one, I would say it's the southern state. Its the reputation isn't one as being so consumer-friendly, so thoughtful, engaging, you know, a diversity of stakeholders taking their time to do it right. They were stellar on this. But there's, in some ways, they're a unique model. I mean, a high percentage of the indigent care, charity care in the state of Louisiana was provided by six state-run hospitals. How many hospitals are there in San Diego? How many in Southern California? You know, and you don't have control over them. You know, here, so there's unique circumstances that enabled them to do something. But what I would take away from Lafee is both what is possible, the outcome, and what they would tell you and what's borne out is it's this partnership where they got community buy-in, they got provider buy-in. Other places can do that, but how you operationalize that in San Diego or in California might look very different than Lafayette.
2: Okay. Doesn't requiring proof of intent related to transmission make prosecuting nearly impossible? I, I guess,
0: you know, what I would ask is, what's the case we want prosecuted? You know, what we've argued for is, well, what our national strategy says is that these laws were enacted at a time when there's a lot of concern. Um, they're probably inconsistent, the spitting and biting example is a, a good one, inconsistent with our, our latest scientific knowledge. But wh- what, what are we trying to do? Are we just trying to prosecute someone because they engaged with sex without disclosing it? Are we trying to prosecute for someone because someone got HIV? Or are we, are we trying to prosecute someone because they went out and they, they said, I'm gonna infect someone intentionally? Those are very different scenarios. We don't need HIV criminal laws to prosecute that intent to treat. And I think that's an easy one. Like like everybody would say, that should be prosecuted. But let's say that, you know, I mean, I was going to give an example of an age, but maybe age is irrelevant. But say young people where one person's living with HIV and one not, they're still figuring out how to navigate sexual relationships and they didn't disclose in a situation. Is that prosecutable? You know, it's interesting, when we released the National AIDS Strategy, we asked, there's two advisory groups, the President's Advisory Council on HIV-AIDS and the CDC and HRSA HIV-AIDS advisory group. We asked them to jointly work together on recommendations around disclosure. And what we said is we want to encourage disclosure, but we also, it doesn't mean every person with HIV should disclose all the time. I would be happy in some cases if you just told one person, right? But we also need to help people understand how to understand if it's safe, if they want to, if they're ready to share this information, right? But in this process, the fascinating thing is the lawyers, both in government and outside of government, were the first ones to say, oh, we would counsel someone not to disclose. And certainly in the context of like hookup culture, these online websites, you know, you disclose your HIV status, it's out there and a lot of harm could come to you. Does that person that you're meeting very casually have a right to know that? The person who's HIV negative in that encounter has the tools themselves you know, um, to protect themselves, you know? And it is a messy thing. I don't want to act as though it's so clear, but, but again, we have a default way of viewing these things that may not necessarily be the most helpful way and certainly probably not the way that protects the public health.
2: Do you think any of the, the sort of way in which we look at those kinds of situations will change with the available, availability of PrEP? We haven't talked about it, but pre-exposure prophylaxis, the ability to take currently one pill once a day to essentially prevent HIV acquisition that among uh, HIV at-risk individuals who know they are at risk, many of them know they're at risk, um, that there will somehow be a burden that, you know, if you acquired HIV, there, there, there is no ability to pursue legal action. You should have been on PrEP.
0: I think, you know, it's interesting. I think that um, the the PrEP issue raises a whole other set of dialogues, and there's sometimes rancor, you know, um, around this, but I actually think it's encouraging. I think we've sent a message that, that people who are HIV negative should avoid people with HIV like the plague, you know? And I'm not sure, you know, if you understand transmission risk, you know, if you even just look at HIV transmission in serodiscordant partnerships where one's positive and negative, it's not like the, the negative partner always becomes HIV positive. It's very, you know, effective to pr- keep the HIV person negative right? So um, I think we're already seeing a shift in the dialogue with PrEP. But what I would say is some people get mad. Sometimes the context is there's a lot of anger and frustration with doctors shaming people for wanting to be on sex. Older people, people my age, shaming these younger kids. And I'm like, wait a second, I remember what you were like when you were young. Or, you know, there's all these things. But, But the other thing that I would counsel is we've given the public a message for 30 years use econom all the time, every time. It's the only message. Now we're saying that these other tools, I live and breathe this stuff. I've been thinking about PrEP for years. I've had a time to adjust my thinking. We're in a transitory period. And I think we'll work through it. So I think we need to be patient. We need to be patient with people in our community that say stigmatizing things, things we don't like. I think we can move people along.
2: One of the biggest worries about big data is the risk of a breach in privacy. Is this case the worry about stigma of having HIV? Um, and uh, is that stigma decreasing? If not, what can we do to decrease stigma?
0: Well, well I mean, this is where I can't be as helpful as I want. I think stigma is, is, is really bad. You know, I've worked in HIV for more than 20 years. When I got to the White House, before we developed our strategy, I did these community discussions all across the country in 14 communities. The thing that was the most shocking to me is how pervasive stigma discrimination was. I remember going to um, a place where people were talking about observational therapy, and I didn't know what they are talking about. And what they meant is their medical doctors. Physicians were afraid to get close to them, so they stood on the other side of the room. And obviously, I wasn't there. I don't know if that really happened, but that was a perception. You know, I heard about cases, some of these we referred to the Justice Department to investigate, about nursing staff not wanting to, you know, change bedsheets. You know, so um, and so family members would have to, like, change the sheets because they they, they weren't willing to do that Mm -hmm. happening today. You know, so stigma is is still uh, alive and well. Um, How do we address it? You know, this is one of the things as an aside. I think the president really gets this issue on stigma when he was a a presidential candidate. He um, got tested for HIV in Kenya when we um, limit, eliminated the HIV entry ban that allowed the International AIDS Conference to come here, his remarks were all grounded in stigma. He would have loved us to do something bigger on stigma. What do you do? You look at the research, and I, I would always say to people, yes, I know it's a problem. Don't show me another study to show me the stigma. What do we do about it? And I don't think there are clear examples. I do think in some ways we need to go back to basics. When I first moved into um, AIDS advocacy, I was at the National Association of People with AIDS. We ran a speakers bureau. We sent people with HIV around disclosing. Some of those types of old-fashioned things we need to do, we need to keep doing. Um, but again, I don't think there's a magic bullet. We still need to do, do more. But we also need to enforce these laws like the ADA to protect people when they're discriminating against as well.
2: Do we have any other questions from the audience?
0: There's a, uh,
1: a larger picture here that occurs to me that there's so much overlap between the promise of getting sequence information about somebody's HIV infection, and personalized genomics, the idea of getting somebody's genomic information. Both cases, it's big data. It's, It's a lot of data we collect, and it tells us a lot about that individual. So what I'm wondering is, is how much of what needs to be worried about in the personal genome situation really covers what we need to worry about in HIV? Or is there so much of the stigma issue, which you've just gone into, that remains for HIV that it's a special case? So is it special or is it really just a subset of the personal
0: genome? I feel like that's an existential question we ask in HIV all the time. Like, is it exceptional or isn't it, you know? And I feel like most of my career is spent by trying to say we need to integrate as much as possible but also say sometimes it really is special. And I get to the criminalization case. You know, there's a lot of stigma for people with mental illness. I'm not trying to you know, use that and say that's bad. But people with mental illness aren't thrown in jail for spitting, you know? And so there are just some ways that, that HIV remains unique. But as you framed your question, though, I actually think that's a promising era. We don't want to always stand out. And we should be trying to come up with ways that, you know, HIV is not the only stigmatized condition, infectious disease, all these things. Looking as broadly as possible to, to come up with um, solutions that work for other populations or, or the public at large. But there are sometimes special cases in HIPAA, there are special um, security standards for um, I, I'm blanking on the term, but psychiatric notes. You know, we don't have. And one of the um, w- before the rule was put out, the administration this is this is the Clinton administration at the time almost didn't want to do that because they're like, oh, if we make an exception for mental health, there's going to be ten other cases. And we and as advocates, we had to say, no, 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 nobody else is coming forward. This really is special. You know, so sometimes. HIV will be special, but I think we want to minimize when that is.
2: Um, I I have a, I've always thought, somewhat simplistic view of reducing HIV stigma. And I I always look at the tobacco um, industry and sort of um, the the wave that has overtaken this country of people quitting smoking. Mm -hmm. And when I try and, I mean, again, it's not one thing, but there was a massive media campaign that occurred everywhere. And it was, you know, it's the tracheotomized patients on the commercials. And, you know, there was a a very big, and I don't know exactly who paid for all of that, but there was a massive public education campaign related to tobacco. And whether it was largely responsible or minimally responsible, it, it, you know, the rates of tobacco smoking in the U.S. have dropped exponentially and I think continue to do so. And so that has always been one of my questions is, yes... The sort of um, grassroots efforts of giving talks and reaching out to consumers, I wholly endorse. But I'm also looking for an infusion of, you know, money <laughs> that would that would lead us to the to the the end goal faster. I mean, right. the whole issue of stigma, criminalization, et cetera. I mean, those issues. I, I guess many of us feel they need they need to go away now.
0: <laughs> right. You know, one thing that you didn't ask this, but it strikes me like if I was trying to be strategic, we also just need to look at the health disparities within HIV, which are large. You know, I've mentioned the, the disparities around gay men, but also um, black Americans, Latino Americans. You know, um, black gay men are more likely to be HIV positive. They're less likely to be aware of their serial status. So when we're you know, funding testing initiatives, not only saying, are we targeting gay men, but saying, you know, how are we making sure we reach this, this population? I think some of those things we need to do. We also need to look at provider behavior. Again, my colleague, Greg Millett, who worked with me at the White House, did some research showing that openly gay uh, individuals that their doctors knew they had HIV, they still wouldn't r- regularly screen them for HIV. You know, so we need, to, there are barriers like that that I don't know that they're stigma per se, but you just sort of scratch your heads, like, what, you, you have to recognize this is a high-risk population. Why aren't you doing something to, yeah. to screen them or intervene?
2: Yeah, I mean, there are multiple studies showing that providers are not very good at assessing risk because they're not comfortable with the conversation they have to have to adequately assess risk. So it's a teachable moment, but it's a big audience.
1: <laughs> so I was going to ask a question. So in all the different types of stigma, you know, one of them has always been disclosure to insurance companies. But uh, I was wondering want to get your thoughts on how the ACA has affected this. Is this a, a stigma that should, we should not worry about anymore, or is it...?
0: So HIPAA actually, you know, if, as long as you had maintained credible coverage or, like, maintained coverage for a period of time uninterrupted, it outlawed discrimination um, in health insurance, but there, there were gaps. The ACA pretty comprehensively outlawed discrimination on the basis of health status. So for health insurance, sure. Life insurance, maybe not. Um, but I do think the ACA in that regard is just simplified. You, you just can't discriminate now. And I think it, that was like a clarifying event. And you know, as the law was phased in, I'd point out, it wasn't like they just said, okay, it's going away. We did it first for children, <laughs> then we did for adults. So, um, so people were actively fighting, what? We can't discriminate? You know, they wanted to discriminate. But, but I do think that's, that's a big policy step forward.